0: Good morning, this is John Halsman, and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, our flagship of the newsletter that we send out, our little local newspaper to the world, and to we look at the beguiling new world that we find ourselves in. And I'm just back from a fantastic black tie weekend at the Villa Dest on Lake Como with the fantastic Butterfield Group, where we played a really great war game on how the world is likely to look in terms of great powers after the Russo-Ukrainian war comes to an end. And this kind of forward-looking approach of war gaming is one of the things I most love to do, uh, which is a thing that my firm has been doing now for about 15 years. We play war games on all the key issues of the day for corporate clients around the world and put their brains to work as Bobby Kennedy, asked Jack Kennedy, what should we do about the Cuban Missile Crisis? And he said in the first real war game, XCOM, the executive committee of the National Security Council, put a whole bunch of smart guys in a room and see what they come up with. And in essence, beyond the John Nash game theory aspects of war gaming, the uh, kind of intellectual approach to it, that's in essence what we still do. And we get some amazing and surprising results as we did at the Villa Dest with the Butterfield Group. It was a wonderful weekend. Sarah got to come down. It's a home game for us from Milan, just down the road. And we had a great time and learned an awful lot together. So a great weekend in Lake Como. War gaming what the world will look like after the Russo-Ukraine war comes to an end in terms of great powers. And and that got me to thinking about our podcast and what we wanted to do next today. And I thought it was time for a winter update as to where we stand in the Russo Ukraine war as winter sets in and the fighting begins to slow down again. Where we stand overall in terms of the war and looking at not the day to day dots so much as what the pointillist painting is, because we need to look at the forces that are driving what went on. And fortunately, I wrote a piece on this topic for Conservative Home just the other day. And I thought that I would I would read and extrapolate from it. I never directly read anything. Every single podcast and every single piece of writing are new. I do that both, both because of my fierce intellectual pride, and also I would find it boring to do the same thing over and over again. And so I think we all benefit from that. And uh, I thought we'd use this as a launching point to look at where we stand in terms of the Russo-Ukrainian war. So without any further ado, here goes. The fantastic new German cinematic version of Eric Maria Remarque's seminal war novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, makes a telling universal point about war itself right off the bat. How a conflict plays out is almost never as you imagine it to be. The young German boys at the beginning of the movie are regaled about the effortless victories they are about to win for Kaiser and Fatherland by their paunchy, dead-eyed, middle-aged history teacher, a man for whom war has always been a glorious theory. The next thing we know, the clueless lads he has swept up in his nationalistic fervor are at the hellscape of the Western Front in World War I, about as far away from chivalric glory as it is possible to be. Remark's microcosm of the folly of the Great War can easily be extrapolated, that if the great men of 1914 had known all that was to come in the deadly whirlwind of the next four years, Which would sweep their more civilized world aside in favor of the barbarism that was to characterize much of the 20th century none of them would have been as suicidally bellicose as they were that faithful summer of 1914. to put it mildly the great war did not go according to anyone's plan and at the end of the war you saw the end of the hohenzollern dynasty the the habsburg austro-hungarian dynasty the ottoman dynasty in turkey and the romanovs in russia the people who were running their various foreign ministries would never have done as they did if they known that, in effect, they were signing their own death certificates as they were. But when you when you begin the process, as Audubon Bismarck said, of going to war, when you draw the sword, you roll the dice. Wars start out being about one thing, but their outcome is always a gamble and rarely end up as people think. Um In the case of the present Russo-Ukrainian war, this is surely true. What Vladimir Putin assumed would be a weeks-long mopping-up exercise as Kiev was once again politically amalgamated into the wider Russian empire has become something very different indeed. Let's remember that the initial Russian battle plans thought that they would take Kiev in three days and the whole of a country larger than France in just three weeks And the CIA was not far off in agreeing with the Russians. They went to pick up Zelensky and move him into exile when he famously said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. That this was the common view at the beginning of the war, not so long ago, that this would be the Russians kicking in the door and Ukraine falling apart. And obviously, that hasn't happened. Worse for analysts, the the fog of war is a very real thing, as the recent missile event in Poland helped to demonstrate. Trapped in the myopia of day-to-day events, it is devilishly hard to take an intellectual strategic step back and make sense of what the point of painting actually looks like, rather than obsessing over much about the dots. And if we are to make sense of the world, these are the intellectual precepts we must sternly follow to do so. We have to take a step back, get out of the myopia of the day-to-day, and look at what's actually now driving a Russo-Ukrainian war that has not gone according to anyone's plan. In the case of Ukraine, there are presently at least two hidden truths that bear a lot more discussion as they reveal the trajectory of the war rather than merely what is happening on any given day. First, despite wishful thinking on all sides, there is a lot more fighting to come. The end is not yet in sight. It ought to be axiomatic, but it's not, that wars continue as long as both sides think they have a realistic chance A victory. In both the Russian and Ukrainian cases at present, both Kiev and Moscow think that spring can still lift them to dominance over the other. In the case of Moscow, despite the recent humiliating defeat at Kierson, Putin still has reasons to believe that ultimate victory will still be his. First, Russia's new position on the east bank of the Dnieper River, which neatly bisects Ukraine, is far more defensible than was, the was the Russian army's line awkwardly jutting across the river to Kyrgyzstan. By withdrawing, they've made their military position, ironically, a lot easier. Putin's troops had time to dig in before they executed this long-planned retreat. With winter setting in, and with the Ukraine perennially short of arms, the Russian army hopes to regroup during the winter lull before the spring campaign of 2023. As ever, Mother Russia looks to winter to help it and to harm the enemy. Also on the plus side, the Kremlin plans to put 300,000 new troops in the field. While the actual number will be smaller, experts estimate that only 180,000 will be managed to make it to the front line, and these will largely be cannon fodder. But while while they'll be raw and often indifferently trained, as Joseph Stalin put it, at some point, quantity becomes quality. If you have that number of people it does strategically matter, whether they're well-trained or, in this case, very badly trained. Putin had tried to avoid this draft as long as possible, as politically it puts his regime in danger, as average Russians become more affected by the tragedy of the war itself. But in gaining use of this new mass of men, there is an immediate military upside. He can hurl these new troops at the Ukrainians, at a minimum blunting their advance, because at the moment the strategic advantage is with the Ukrainians, and then wait for Western war weariness to further his cause. In other words, Putin is going back to the old czarist saw that his people can deal better with suffering than the Westerners can deal with suffering. For all these reasons, and despite the military calamities that have befallen him, the Russian elite still believe that ultimate victory in the war is possible. It will fight on. But given its recent surprising successes at Kyrgyzstan and around Kharkiv in the northeast of Ukraine in the fighting front, Kiev is greatly encouraged and of no mind to end a conflict where the military momentum presently lies with them. The Biden administration, which in sending more than half of all military and civilian aid to Kiev is in essence essence Volodymyr Zelensky's patron, shows no sign of flagging in its support for the Ukrainian cause. More advanced weaponry has arrived in Ukrainian hands, most famously the HIMARS multiple rocket launcher, And with time and practice, Ukrainian troops are using the new advanced weaponry to increasingly deadly effect. Let's remember that Ukrainian troops are used to only working with Soviet-era weaponry. So giving them the highest-end American and NATO strategic wherewithal takes time to learn how to use this. And as they begin to understand the weapons in front of them, the ability of the Ukrainians to use it more effectively gets better week by week by week by week at the moment with the coming of the spring and with the strategic initiative still with them kiev is not remotely reminded to throw in the towel why should they throw in the towel when in essence on the front at the moment they're winning and the strategic initiative is with them second However, beyond the fact that this fighting is going to go on, because both sides still think they can win, the second takeaway as we head into winter is that it is political forces away from the battlefield that will determine the outcome of the war. As Clausewitz said, war is politics by other means. It is the outside politics that drive what goes on on the Ukrainian front. And we have to keep our eye on this ball if we're ever going to understand in political risk terms what's going on. The two key present political drivers of the war are simple to explain, as they are hard to gauge. Will Western war weariness outpace Russia's fabled ability to suffer, or will Putin's calling up of his reservists and issuing a semi-draft be the beginning of the end of Russian tolerance for his botched invasion? The key political question is whether Russian or Western weariness comes to a head first in the coming year in 2023. For the West, the good news is that, Europe, that the European scramble to secure energy supplies for the coming winter has been tactically successful. Most of the storage tanks in Europe are around 90% full, which is in excess of normal EU directives. Europe will be able to get through the coming winter. Don't buy the apocalypse now of the mainstream media. In the short run, by scrambling and throwing plates in the air, Europe is going to be able to get through the winter. But what about the next one? For the EU's scramble to throw policy plates in the air in terms of its energy policy must not obscure the devastating fact that Brussels has no plan to get through the next winter. It will take time for the German engineers to construct the vast liquefied natural gas terminals, the LNG terminals in the north of the country, to offload American shale, which is part of the answer in the medium run to them covering up the whole of their ruinous dependence on Russia. Likewise, Gasrich Cutter would like to help, but its long-term contracts until recently have been with Asian countries. So even if it wants to help, it's going to take time for Cutter to go through those contracts and then readjust contracts for Europe. There will be more gas from the Netherlands and Norway, particularly Norway is a no-brainer for 20 I played a war game 20 years ago with the EU where the obvious outcome was you hedge on your, your, your involvement with Russian gas. You do more with shale and the Americans, even if you don't like them. You do more with Qatar, even if you don't like it. And then you up the gas intake from the Netherlands, which are part of the EU, and Norway, where there's no political risk at all. Of course, they didn't do this, and now that's what they're having to do to try to save themselves. For the black hole that emanates from Europe divesting itself from Russian national gas due to the moronic energy policies on the continent of the past two decades will not go away. It's next winter that remains the problem. There is a time frame that we have to take into account here. And the end of 2023 is when you're going to see a crisis because the LNG terminals will not all be running. And so there'll be a limit to American shale. Cutter will not have changed all its contracts, which takes time. And even allowing for more gas from Norway and the Netherlands, a new pipeline may have to be built from Norway. That takes a lot of time. And the Netherlands alone don't have enough wherewithal to make up this vast difference. So it's next winter that remains the problem. Is Europe really prepared to theoretically support a Ukraine? Most of its citizens have never visited given the practical economic and social costs that may ensue. This is not a first-order priority for a European if you live in Spain, what happens in Ukraine. It is if you're Polish, but Europe and the EU is continental, and that means not everyone looks at Ukraine the same way. And for many countries, to put it mildly, what happens in Ukraine is at best a second-order interest, not a first-order interest. And is a in Europe really prepared to genuinely make sacrifices for anything, let alone for something that is a second-order priority for much of the continent. A fine European Council on Foreign Relations poll of June makes for bleak reading in this sense. When Europeans were asked whether the goal over the Ukraine war should be for it to end immediately or to see Russia defeated, so on one hand you can have peace and all that goes with it, on the other hand you have justice for Ukraine, a plurality of 35% wanted peace at all costs, while only 22% wanted justice for Ukraine. Further, pluralities were favored at any price in great regional powers, Italy, Germany, and France. So the big three in the EU, Italy, Germany, and France, a plurality, want peace today, at the lines of the battle today, rather than justice for Ukraine over time. And that's even before it's winter. If things get tougher, it is an open strategic question as to whether Europe is not the weak link in sustaining the U- Ukrainian cause, that these numbers will get worse and worse as sacrifices are actually placed on the table. For the, however, for the hawkish Russian elite, the danger is that further defeats and even the absence of a confidently expected victory, and let's remember that everybody thought the Russians would win it quickly, so further defeats or even stalemate will lead to Putin's demise or at least increase his desire to save face in some way at the negotiating table. While the Russian president is undoubtedly hoping hoping that time is on his side as the Europeans waver in their support for Ukraine as 2023 progresses, time can also be seen as moving against the Kremlin. A war that was supposed to take days has taken years. Easy victory has given way to humiliating stalemate at best and defeat at worst, sullying the very Russian nationalism brand that has been the source of both Putin's political legitimacy and surprising popularity. For decades, a humiliated Russia is not what great Russian nationalism is about. John Kennedy put it well. While victory has a thousand fathers, defeat is an orphan. Putin may find himself increasingly alone, isolated, and politically endangered if Russia, Russia's masses of men cannot change the current trajectory of battle, saving face at the negotiating table, with the Europeans and Americans restraining the Ukrainians on the basis of that they, are pay, that they are paying for everything, again, to get away from maximalist Ukrainian goals, all the Americans have to do is say they're keeping the lights on, they, this may be his last best chance of survival in time. So these are the new truths of the Russo-Ukrainian war. What remark would entirely understand is that lying beneath these strategic questions, there lies one horrible human certainty. The suffering is bound to continue. We're a long way from the end in the Ukrainian war, but these are the drivers you need to keep your eye on as 2023 begins and as we move forward. Again, we can begin to see where the cracks are and where the outcome will be determined simply by following political risk. I remember when I first learned about realism, it felt like I'd been seeing, I felt like Indiana Jones would be looking at tablets no one had seen before. I had a hidden new way to look at the world that made sense of all human history, since the greeks and if we keep looking at history and the history that's evolving in front of our eyes through the realist prism i have no doubt that we'll get there in the end thank you very much i really enjoyed doing this one for us you can see the drilling is starting in the house you can hear in the background Uh, so i'm glad to get this done and out to you as soon as possible for those of you who have yet to subscribe please do so so many of you have and, and we're thrilled that our little local paper to the world is booming. And for those of you who have subscribed, again, we ask simply the price of one of my cherished espressos for $70 a year, for $70 a year or $7 a month, we'll continue giving you cutting edge, world-class political risk analysis as our community looks at the world and makes sense of it. Again, I had a great time this weekend wargaming at the Villa Dest on Lake Como and getting to wear my dinner jacket, and I was given the greatest opening introduction I think I've ever received when I was compared to being, quote, a mix of Henry Kissinger and James Bond. If only I could live up to that. (laughs) Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy that. And again, if any of you want to play a war game with your corporate, please do let us know. Otherwise, please subscribe. And beyond that, again, $70 a year. We will keep them coming. Thanks ever so much and see you soon.